Well, I think no matter how, no matter what drugs or alcohol or whatever, you know, we use addictively or no matter how we stop using that thing, uh, I believe that we typically start that journey from a pretty self-obsessed and self-centered place. And so it's not a complete mystery as to why when people find their path, they get really passionate about that path. And I think that um, I, I remember when I had three or four years clean and I remember I had two sponsees that decided they were going to leave my 12-step program. Um, I, just the one I was a part of, obviously, I didn't own it. I can't own a 12-step program. And, uh, and I remember calling my sponsor and just like being so upset and saying they're just making the wrong decision. They're, and he was like, Mike, what are our core three spiritual principles? Welcome to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol and spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same, including right now. How's it going, folks? Uh, do you know that old saying that when you dig yourself a hole, you should stop digging? Well, I dug myself a little hole and I'm going to continue digging against popular advice. And, um, you know, there's a reason for that. I think it's really important. So in the last podcast episode, before the one you're going to hear next, you would have heard me and Strive Coach, a 1,000 Day Sober Coach, uh, Vinnie Grant. We were talking about um, how insidious media stories can be very problematic to our mental health and the difference between being aware of what's going on in the world and being interested in it, okay? That was my point. And Vinny was pressing uh, Byron Katie's point of, you know, differentiating between what's your business, what's somebody else's business, and what's God's business, right? And I want to start off by saying that obviously, I'm stating the obvious, that me and Vinny both got on that podcast because we felt we were doing good in the world and we wanted to help people out. We didn't want to be alarmist. We didn't want to create stress. We wanted to relieve stress and pressure. And that's because we could, well, I'm not going to speak for Vinny. I'll speak for myself. The reason I asked Vinny to come on and talk about this very topic is because I myself, being the leader and the founder of 1000 Days Sober, have realized that there are a lot of people who have been consumed by COVID-19 and it's led to them kind of having quite difficulties on a mental health level, leading to uh, relapses in drinking or just drinking much more than a person uh, used to drink before COVID-19, right? And... I was trying to make the point in the podcast with Vinny that this is not a good thing for everybody, that there are some people who need to unplug. And after the podcast, uh, Strive Ambassador Craig made some really good points on Strive uh, around the podcast on how it, people could perceive it to be very different from what I was explaining and how it could actually be dangerous to some people that I'm telling them to unplug, you know, because Craig's view is that people should be aware of what's going on with COVID. And right now as well, we weren't discussing it at the time, but what's going on with the, the George Floyd death and the subsequent 
marches around the world that is uh, happening as a result of that, people should be interested in these things and they need to be interested in them because that is what is going to create change. And that there are far too many people in the world who are not interested in these things, who are not taking them as seriously as they should be, COVID being a good example, and are going out behaving in ways that are just completely immoral and ethical and quite frankly dangerous. A good example would be not going out and wearing your mask in places where you should be wearing a mask, not abiding by the social distancing rules, things like that, right? So, you know, Craig felt that I was, I could potentially be doing some harm to people. And that's obviously not my intention. And Craig knows that as well. So I just wanted to clear up a few things before we get on to this next podcast. And I welcome anybody who was upset by anything that me or Vinny said in the in the previous podcast to email me at the truth alcohol at gmail.com and I'll hop on a call and we'll have a conversation about it. But there's what I want to say. I just want to reinforce the point that I wanted to make to Craig that I didn't make very clear in the podcast. Okay. Um, when I turn around and say that I want people to be aware of what's going on in the world. So I want people to be aware that George Floyd uh, was murdered and I want people or allegedly murdered. And I want people to, I do want people to get angry about that. And I do want people to have a think about what that means to them and their life and their society and culture in general. Uh, Similarly, I want people to be aware uh, that COVID is going on so they know what they need to do to keep themselves, other people and their family and that safe. Okay. However, I don't think that it's right for everybody to be interested in it. So if you're the type of person who nominally uh, wouldn't be drinking alcohol or you would manage your mental health and your anxiety and your stress and your depression very well outside of COVID, but to watch news stories of COVID 24-7 and to be uh, mindlessly uh, scrolling down your social media feed, just reading everything that you can about COVID, if that drives you to drink alcohol or to take drugs or to watch pornography or to gamble, or to smoke, or to um, hit somebody, or any other addictive behavior that you normally wouldn't be doing if you weren't overwhelmed and couldn't handle this deluge of information, then I am telling you that you shouldn't be interested in it. And take that from somebody who doesn't watch TV. I don't own a TV. I don't watch TV. I rarely read articles on the internet. And I don't listen to radio, yet I know enough about COVID to protect myself, to protect my family, and to get angry about the way the world has dealt with it, okay? Similarly, I know enough about what's going on uh, with the George Floyd, the Black Lives Matters, and, and what that means on a greater scale. I know enough about that without having to watch TV, listen to radio, et cetera, et cetera, and I can now think about what my role is in that and how myself and 1000 Days Sober can change and can learn and educate ourselves and other people about what's going on right now, okay? I can do that. Uh, and, And that's for another podcast, I think. I think I might do a podcast alone sharing my thoughts on that. But I can be aware of this stuff and I'm not even interested in it. I'm just aware of it, right? Like, 
I'm more interested in the George Floyd stuff than the COVID stuff in as much as alcoholism is a powerarchy. It's a an invisible, violent and dominant belief system where the dominant group, the drinkers and the institutions that support the drinkers, they oppress the non-drinkers. That's a powerarchy. Uh, racism is a powerarchy. Patriarchy is a powerarchy. So I am interested in those things. We teach a lesson on powerarchy in the 1000 Day Sober Experience. It's really, really interlinked. What we're doing and the work we're doing is intellect. So I am interested in that kind of stuff. However, I'm not of the disposition, whereas if I watched, and I don't, because I don't need to, but if I watch 24-7 of this, I'm not going to start drinking. I'm not going to take drugs. I'm not going to do any of those things. It would affect me and my mental health, and I would start to feel a real low energy vibe and transmit that to people around me. I would find it really difficult to keep upbeat, um, and I would be more prone to anger and to upsetting people that I love if I was just focusing on it 100%, okay? So the point that I want to make is if you are, if you suffer from mental health issues and you really think you're going to slip back on some really good progress you made, if you are really getting interested in this stuff, then switch off, switch off, okay? We can all be a crusader in so many different ways, but we can't be a crusader if we haven't looked after ourselves. We need to unplug and recharge. And there should be nothing wrong with us doing that because we need to recharge in order for us to be the change that we want to see in the world, right? So just switch off if it affects your mental health. If it doesn't, and you're strong, and you don't think that you're going to uh, drink alcohol and all that kind of stuff, then knock yourself out if you're going to use the knowledge that you're consuming to a good effect. So someone like Craig, for example, I think Craig would make a cracking politician. So for Craig, I think he should get interested in these type of things. I think he should get really angry about these things and uh, the sense of injustice, and he should try to do something about it. I think that would be perfect for him, just like he's done in alcohol, okay? Just like he's doing right now. He doesn't have to be a Strive ambassador, you know, but for Craig, seeing the injustice in the world that people drink in when there's no value in drinking, it drives him to be an ambassador and make a change in the world. But he can handle it. He's not going to drink. He's feeling really strong and solid about that. He's in our 1K club, right? That's very different to our members who are in the stuck phase or the people who haven't even reached the stuck phase yet. They can't face turning the laptop on and doing the work because they're so overwhelmed about the concept of being someone who doesn't drink alcohol. For them, it's not right that they get stuck into COVID, they get stuck into uh, what's going on with George Floyd, if it's going to flip them over. You know, like you just got, we've all got to be really balanced and understand our own boundaries here and our own strengths and weaknesses around this thing. So um, I just wanted to just express that and just to, yeah, set the record straight, so to speak. Uh, if anybody's got anything else that I said in that podcast or any other podcast that pisses you off or you think that I'm out of line, email me at thetruthaboutalcoholandgmail.com. Um, I learned a great deal from my interaction with Craig, as I always do. And um, so I, I, I see it as a gift. This feedback is a gift. So uh, please do that, okay? Anyway, um, after aside of that, I want to do a few congratulatory messages. I want to say congratulations to Polly. 
for joining the 100 Day Club this week. I want to say a big uh, well done to Roy, who recently unplugged and recharged from Strive for those very reasons uh, that I just spoke about. Uh, she is going to hit the 200 Day Club this weekend. I want to say a big massive kiss uh, to Andrew in Australia for hitting the 365 Day Club uh, at the time that you will listen to this podcast. So well done, Andrew. A year is a massive thing. And I want to say a big well done to Strive Ambassador Laurie, who joins the 900-day club tomorrow. Just 100 days more to go, and you will be a member of our 1K club, Laurie. Uh, Laurie does a lot of great work um, behind the scenes and guiding uh, Strivers as a, as a Strive Ambassador. So thank you. And I want to say welcome to Paul R. from uh, the UK. Paul joined in April when we were running the 1,000 Day Sober Experience. We opened it up to people for free. Paul is the only one that came through that, um, willing to invest in himself and really jump into the 1,000 Day Sober uh, Experience. He's doing really well. He's doing fantastic, actually, really getting involved. So, Paul, welcome to the group. Welcome to the team. Really appreciate it. So, uh, without further ado, I'm going to shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of our next guest. He's got a whopping great big long uh, bio. I won't read it all, but he said, at the age of 23, uh, Michael Brodyweight, this is who we're going to talk to, was a full-blown drug addict. Uh, Every day he drank a fifth of vodka and a 12-pack of beer. He smoked two packs of ciggies and more weed than any human should. And he did whatever other drugs he could get his hands on in the meantime. He'd been kicked out of college, fired from his job, evicted from his apartment. He had no money, no home, was throwing up blood, uh, and he really thought he would be dead before his 30th birthday. And then on September the 1st, 2002, after running out of options and fearing death, he checked into rehab, entered recovery, and transformed himself. He's uh, he's had a uh, he's been on the TEDx stage in Nashville. Uh, he's got a YouTube uh, a video out there that's been seen by a million plus people. It's called "Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do," uh, and that is what we talked about. And his three principles. His talk at TEDx inspired his mask-free movement, which has got nothing to do with COVID, by the way. He's talking about the mask we put on to hide ourselves from the world. He wants us to take those masks off. Uh, He created and left a Fortune 50 company, and now he works for Fortune 50 companies, helping them in his capacity as a, uh, what do you call it, a speaker or, um, I don't know, can't even think of the word now. But that's what Michael is doing. And he's here on the podcast talking to us today. I said a consultant. That was a word that I couldn't I couldn't remember. A consultant. So he's here to talk to us about his three principles and about how if we, you know, we can learn from what makes an effective addict and put that into our life. We can be amazing people. We touch upon a lot of great stuff, including parenting and a very, very vulnerable discussion and an unusual discussion, a rare discussion between two men talking about how challenging it is and the shame around not really wanting to be with our children. You know, everybody says we should be, but sometimes you just don't want to be. And we have a little talk about that amongst other things. So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Mike Brody waite Thank you for listening. Michael Brody waite how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? 
Good. We were just talking, weren't we, just before we came on air about me saying I'm not an alcoholic and I refuse to be anonymous and you being from the 12-step kind of principle of things. It is really important, isn't it, I think, that we just acknowledge that whenever each one of us goes through our journey and we go from being an addict to uh, becoming clean or free or I know you still identify as an addict I do in, in, in a lot of respects but we really are precious and we cherish that journey and what worked for us we want to then go and help other people kind of like oh this worked for me so like right. you know and it's that passion and it's that so you know if, I can, if anybody goes through the 12 steps I'm, they're going to be super passionate about it if it worked for them you know and if for me you know just thinking it was all psychological, super passionate about that for me. But it, it is important to have an open mind both ways, though, isn't it? Well, I think no matter how, no matter what drugs or alcohol or whatever, you know, we use addictively or no matter how we stop using that thing, uh, I believe that we typically start that journey from a pretty self-obsessed and self-centered place. And so it's not a complete mystery as to why when people get, find their path, they get really passionate about that path. And I think that um, I, I remember when I had three or four years clean and I remember I had two sponsees that decided they were going to leave my 12-step program. Um, I, just the one I was a part of, obviously, I didn't own it. I can't own a 12-step program. And, uh, and I remember calling my sponsor and just like being so upset and saying they're just making the wrong decision. They're, and he was like, Mike, what are our core three spiritual principles? I was like, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. He's like, yeah, you know that middle one? He's like, you're not the high, their higher power. You don't actually know what's best for them. And it's arrogant to think that your way is the only way. Yeah. We're both passionate about this way, but it is arrogance to think this is the only way. And so I think that we do a disservice to people when we um, have a really closed view. Um, and I think that there, you got to create different pathways for different types of people that have different temperaments and, and help them find the right thing. All that matters is they stop ruining their lives. That's all that matters. Yeah, I, to I totally agree. Um, it, whatever path it is. And the most important thing is to help people get help. So I'm always saying to people, look, if this doesn't work for you, um, there are lots of other people that I can get you in touch with that might work. Because I found that this could be a variety of things. <clears throat> we, you know, here at 1000 Days Sober, we could have like the greatest educational platform in the world. But if someone doesn't like me saying I'm not an alcoholic, that's it. That's done for them. So I don't want them to just go away. I want to be like, okay, ever heard of this thing, Alcoholics Anonymous? Get over there and check them out. You know, it's like, I think that in itself is authenticity as well. It's like, I'm not the only person on the planet trying to help people. And I know a lot of people who can help you. So let's get to that. But it's interesting, though, because I think a lot of people get a little bit suspicious when someone is overly authentic. Do you ever do you ever fall in? Do you ever find that around you when you're being overly authentic? Well, I think it's uh, sometimes people confuse authenticity with transparency and honesty. And, you know, being authentic is being true to yourself in word and action. And so um, if you're a mafia boss, being authentic is killing people and stealing their money. So I think that it's very, very easy for us to put our definition of authenticity on other people. And, and at the same time, I know a lot of people that will be crazy, like Brene Brown calls it, I think, floodlighting, where they'll like completely overshare. And it's actually a way to avoid intimacy. 
Um, and they'll tell you everything about them, like without you ever has, asking anything. And that's not authenticity either. That's only authenticity if their value is that they want every single person they interact with to have all the information up front. But most of the people I know that do that are just doing that out of insecurity that if someone finds out this thing about them or they don't want to like live in this gray area where the, someone doesn't know some of the things about them and all that kind of stuff. So authenticity is a choose your own adventure situation. And I think that um, anyone that goes out of their way to share everything up front and is, is actually, in my opinion, usually covering up something. Mm. Um, so I do get suspicious because I think authenticity is like not a one size fits all deal in the first place. We actually had a conversation around floodlighting on the forum at Strive, with, certainly within the last year, because we was all reading Brenny Brown's work, particularly Daring Greatly, that we was doing a lot of work on. And yep. we, were, we were all getting a little bit stuck on floodlighting because we are so driven to help people to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and to be vulnerable and to share and to just to be so open. And I've always been that way all my life that I couldn't identify the boundary between floodlighting and just being myself. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Well, I think part of the problem is that when we read those things, we're looking for static definitions. Hmm. It's dynamic. You're a human being that has different preferences and, and ideologies and, and whatever. And so what the right, so for example, I'm a member of an anonymous program. And so most of my friends, no matter how much time they've had not using, uh, like to maintain their anonymity. I, on the other hand, get up and do a TED talk called Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do and come out with a book called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. So I'm very comfortable. And I think it's very easy for either one of us to say, this is the way, just like you and I were talking about with recovery. Mm-hmm. For me, being true to myself and word in action is openly sharing the fact that I'm a recovering addict, but also to my friend that keeps their anonymity, they might be being true to themselves and word in action. Yet there are times where I, where I have been tempted to hide and there are times where they disclosed and we were both being inauthentic, even though we were doing the thing that the other person prefers, because all we were doing was violating our own boundaries. And so I think if you're someone who's always been really open, I think that your definition of floodlighting is going to be a lot more aggressive than other people's, but also it may be authentic to you to just be really open. And you might have someone where that's not authentic to them, but they're doing it out of nervousness or to try to accelerate intimacy or because they're scared of the vulnerability of, I don't want people to find this thing out about me. So I'm going to put it all out on the front end. So I don't have to deal with the risk of getting rejected. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And I've also had people I've had also had people of different personality types say to me, whoa, like fucking calm down a little bit. It's like it's too much, too much for me. Like you fry my fucking skull. Like, you know, can we just get back to just simple, like how's the weather? <laughs> so, sort of thing. And that's particular actually that, that would be my closest, that'd be my wife, that'd be my son, my mom, my dad, you know, people like that. Yeah. I, I don't ter- I don't I don't particularly love small talk. And so like I don't love talking about the weather. I'm like, dude. Talk about the weather. What is this? Like, are we in a dance? Like, are we just looking for moves that we can both simulate? Or are we going to talk about the real shit that's happening in our lives? So, I mean, that's like, you know, I don't, I don't floodlight, but I definitely um, have times where I find myself in situations where people are essentially doing the equivalent of social lubricating 
through small talk and I have this like appetite to get to what's real. It doesn't mean that I have to share everything and know everything, but I still like, Oh man, do we have to do all these dances or can we just get like, how actually are you? Cause when you ask people how they're doing, and I know there's a million comedians that said this before me, but you don't actually know what to do if they say not well, because the common answer is, Oh, I'm great. Or, or things are good or whatever. And then I would always be like, are they? Yeah. And I was like, what you actually want to know? Like, yeah, man, I don't care about this social stuff. Like, you know, whatever, just, just tell me how you're doing. And so I have an appetite to get to what's real too, but that's just my preference. Yeah. I did a course two days ago on the school of life uh, on how to fail properly. And we were talking about it. There's about 50 people on the group and we were talking about how we want to be authentic. Right. So when someone comes to you and it's like, how are you feeling? What a question, right? Like most, because you're, you're, like you say, you're, you're sub, your subconscious is why to just go, yeah, great, right? Like most of the time. But really, your, your true answer would be, well, you know, am I feeling uh, anxious, sad, happy, kind of like overwhelmed, uh, yeah. in love? You know, like which ones you want to, which ones you want to focus on first? And <laughs> it's that, it's that dance between being authentic and being open, not, you know, falling for the small talk for small talk's sake, but also not being a miserable bastard who walks around with a fucking great cloud <laughs> over your head all the time. So, I mean, but this is what we're talking about here. It's just life and life skills and learning how to communicate. And I, I don't know about you, but like, you know, in addiction for me, like communication, particularly around relationships, it's like just fucking monumental for me. Like, you know, if I, if, oh, I, that's, that's, if I can't communicate. That's how you know. Yeah. If I that's can't how you know if you're being real. Yeah. Because everybody's a mirror, right? And I talk my uh, my book about how I, I feel like everybody wears a mask, um, and I wrote the book before the pandemic. So I, was I know I, la- I laugh in my head off last night when I saw that, dude. It's it's. <laughs> I actually had someone reach out to me on Facebook, and they were like, "You're killing people." And I'm like, "No, I'm helping people." And like, "You're telling people not to wear a mask." I'm like, "Oh, okay." Leaders for centuries have been hiding their true selves. I call that wearing a mask. I want people to live mask free. It's figurative. I'm all for physical like N95 mask like. <laughs> Yes, sure, whatever. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, that's really cool. And then he like retracted the death threat, um, which I was really grateful for. But I think that, uh, you know, I think we get trained to, to hide our true selves. Uh, I think a lot by society. And there's a lot of work that goes into learning how to live and lead mask-free. And I think everybody finds that, at least in my experience, I, I didn't find my true self by looking for my true self. It started by me trying to spot all the moments where I was selling myself out. And over time, that's what helped me identify like what my real preferences were and who I really was and what really mattered to me. I want to talk to you about the mask, but something just come up that I think is important to share, actually. When when I was looking uh, through your stuff, like just doing a bit of research for the show and first saw the, uh, the, the comment about, you know, being mask free, the first thought in my head was, oh, that must be linked to the pandemic. What's he talking about? So... The reason I want to raise that now is that assumption, you know, that, that just happens kind of automatically. I find that that assumption is so prevalent in addicts and that it leads to so much fucking carnage and eventually using when the reality of the situation, if we were just to take a pause and to investigate more and to understand the truism of what is in front of you and not yep. leading with your assumptions and your perceptions. What do you think about that? Uh, I think so. I think that what you're talking about is central to the challenge, the malady of addicts. So I, I believe that 
and I'm not a clinical psychologist of any kind, but I believe that we suffer from a variant of obsessive compulsive disorder where we are obsessed with being able to predict the way that we feel, not necessarily feel good, but be able to predict the way that we feel. And we will trade feeling bad by self-sabotaging or using a drug um, over the potential for a variable outcome of how we will feel. And so it that is one of the reasons that we are such black and white thinkers, because if we have a binary perspective, we can predict which side of the uh, spectrum we're going to end up on. And so that way, when you see something, if you make the assumption, you're living in a place where you can assume at what you're going to feel. It's predictable. But if mm. you say, you know what? That scares me a little bit. That intrigues me a little bit. And I want to learn more. Now you've just made yourself vulnerable to a whole spectrum of feelings and interactions, and you don't have the capacity to predict them. And so you're going to deprioritize that discovery because it's going to lead you to the place that you literally put all this crap in your system just to avoid experiencing. Hmm. I like it. You, you, you uh, expressed your, your view on that a lot more eloquently than I did, Michael. I, I don't know that's true. I think I got a little lost when I was talking about math, so I'm glad you brought me back. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you a question, and then after you've answered it, I'm going to explain the reason why I asked the question. What is one of your greatest weaknesses right now? I would say that, you know, in my TED Talk, I talked about this. I talked about how when I interview employees, I ask them what their greatest weakness is, and I give them three chances to tell me their actual greatest weakness. And if they can't tell me what's real, I don't hire them no matter how qualified they are. And at that time in my life, my greatest weakness when I gave the TED Talk was uh, two years ago, was the fact that I couldn't celebrate and experience joy in success or achievement um, and that doesn't have to be professional. It could be my having my daughter. It could be, you know, having my, you know, we're pregnant with my son, like those sorts of things. But it's really hard for me to appreciate things in the moment. Um, and I think that, you know, at the age of 41, I'm starting to actually really, it's starting to really sink in that my time on earth is limited. Um, I have no idea what happens after, but just I know that my time on, on you know, in this way on earth is is limited. And I find myself really struggling to be able to just sit and enjoy the struggle of building my platform, the struggle of teaching my daughter how to eat food and do things. And I keep having this running uh, commentary in my head that says, you're going to look back on these moments and miss them. Um, and at the same time, I find myself rushing to get to the next moment and not appreciating them. And I think that that is something that when I was really striving, when I was younger in my recovery and younger in my career, I think it's something that I could rationalize. But now that I've been able to accomplish some things and accrue some resources and figure out who I am and have a family and all that kind of stuff, I think that I don't really have a really good excuse not to enjoy this life because I really wasn't supposed to live this long in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think my greatest weakness right now is being able to enjoy all the little moments because I keep thinking that if I can get to a place where it's utopia and paradise and perfect in the future and everything goes perfectly, I'll enjoy it. But I have experienced those moments. I've sold a company to a publicly traded company. I've done a TED Talk. I've married the woman of my dreams. I've had my daughter. And in those moments, it is so hard for me to enjoy them. So like, mm. I'm not able to really enjoy this thing called life. So yeah. I think that's a pretty shitty weakness, mm. but it's it's one that I'm at least aware of. So I like yeah. the question. Thank you. For why being, do you ask it? Thank you for being really open about that. Yeah, actually, before I tell you why I, why I ask it, it reminds me of a conversation I had with my wife last night. You know, we were checking in last night, and I said to her how really interesting it is that um, 
I bashed my father up, but like vocally on here in my head to his face, you know, about how he was always absent from my life and how he was always working away and he wasn't emotionally present. He, he, he would come home and just what he does in bed and all that kind of stuff. And I have a 19-year-old in the UK, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old here, and I was saying to my wife, Liza, I've noticed that I'm falling into – I've not fallen. I have the same pattern in, in as much as if I – like every morning I make, I get up with my daughter and make breakfast with her, the amount of times I get up off that seat and go to do something, and then she follows me, and then I'm like, you know, get back to your seat and eat your breakfast. And then, and then at dinner, I'm the same, and I realize that I'm – always trying to run away from my kids. And I said to Liza last night, mm. I'm the type of guy who really looks forward to putting their kids to bed so I can just relax mm-hmm. and not have that constant energy around me. However, I now realize that I'm actually doing exactly the same thing as my dad. And it's a complete lack of mindfulness and presence. And that's not good. And it's not the way that I want to behave. And it's totally I'm misaligned with my values. So you're not alone. Dude, but I relate to what you just shared so big, man. Cause like mm-hmm. my daughter's 16 months old. And in my in the first six months, I remember thinking that I needed to leave my family because I felt like an imposter. Um, the way I would always say it is I felt like a resentful tourist mm-hmm. in my own home. And I wasn't like crazy resentful. It's just I, I did not enjoy interacting with my daughter. There was no feedback loop. I, I, I like to talk about advanced stuff and she can't hold her head up, right? Like um, my wife is a ghost to me because she has to take care of my daughter. They have a relationship. I don't know what to do with her. I'd rather solve more complex problems that are business or recovery in nature. Mm-hmm. And I found myself like, you know, rocking her to bed or, or whatever. And the entire time saying someone else should be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't something I enjoy or that I'm good at. And I, and, and I remember, you know, when I, when I was going to have my, when I was going to have her Amorette, everybody told me, you know, oh, you're going to lose sleep. You're, you're not going to sleep. Well, actually, um, because I was the only one working at the time, my wife and I are, and she's really good about not having sleep. And I'm really bad about not having sleep. She said, you know, if I have to get up anyhow, um, cause she didn't want to use bottles. She's like, you should just sleep through the night. So I was having the, uh, an experience that was, I would feel guilty when people say, are you tired? Because I wasn't, but nobody warned me that I was going to like, feel like an outsider and, and go, do I really want this life? And so finally in, uh, in one of my meetings, I shared about it and all these guys came up to me afterwards and told me that they felt the same thing. And then mm-hmm. at about six months when, when their kids started interacting and then at, at 12 months and then at two years when they could really have like back and forth and do stuff with them, they really came to like love it, love their child and, and really appreciate it. But they felt that same way at the beginning. And I was just like, why weren't you going to tell me about that part? <laughs> like we all know how to, like we've all experienced lack of sleep. Like, thanks for telling me I won't sleep, but like, why didn't you tell me about that part? And then interestingly enough, I open up and share about that. And another guy that's in my uh, home group had a kid three months after me. And I remember calling him and asking him how he's doing. He's like, I'm great. And I was like, no, you're not. Stop bullshitting me. He's like, no, no, I'm fine. He's like, everything's fine. It's great. We have a healthy baby. I was like, yeah, I recited all those things too. How are you actually? He's like, dude, I'm struggling. I'm like, I, I just told you that I was struggling, but yet you feel like you need to pretend that you're not. And so now with her 16 months and us pregnant with our second, I'm both 
in a little bit fearing, you know, going back to the newborn phase where I feel no connection, but maybe I'll feel connection this time. But I love my daughter now. Now I have the connection and I don't have that challenge anymore. But I, but because the things I have to teach her are so remedial, my brain gets bored. And, and so I find myself getting up when she is eating mm-hmm. and in like, you know, getting water or like, putting the dog bowl down. Like I, my brain is just sitting there and it's not being fully utilized. And so it comes <laughs> up with like an entire task list and it's just, and, and it's just all designed to get me away yeah. from like arguably the most important thing. So I related to everything you said. Well, it's because they, cause there's such a big part of everything as well. Even when we're, cause we, we do the same here. My wife looked after Azia while I did the work, which in itself creates a lot of tension and a lot of, a lot of assumptions around guilt yeah. and all kind of stuff, but it, it's such an important aspect of it that you you really do have to kind of find an outlet to be open with it. And it sounds like you you know you have that with your group. Uh, I hope you have that with your wife as well. Um, oh, dude, and- I, I do. I wasn't telling her, and I felt so disconnected from her. And so my friends were like, "Tell her." I'm like. She is sitting there being held hostage by something that's eating her nipples every hour and a half. She has no sleep. She does not need to hear about how I'm feeling sorry for myself. Yeah. And, and they were like, no, share. And when I went, so I shared with them, which they encouraged me to share with her. And then when I shared with her, she's like, God, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Because I was wondering what the heck was going on with you. I was like, yeah, you're not pissed off. You're not pissed off that I'm like sitting here like complaining and I have a much better situation than you do in this regard. She's like, no. And and I learned right there. Okay. Cause like my wife and I like, you know, no offense to anyone that lives in the South and, and that does this, but I feel like, you know, I live in the South and a lot of people will like, um, it's really important to project the image of a healthy marriage. And I feel like at the same time, most people don't have healthy marriages and I'm really fortunate. It's my second marriage. So I think I learned my lessons in the first, but I'm with my soulmate. I'm with my best friend. Like I adore her. We have this incredible relationship. And so I didn't want to hurt her, but I wasn't connected to her. And that's one of the things that was driving my feeling like an outsider. Yeah. And so by actually talking to her about it and her going, no, I understand. And I don't want you to process this stuff separately. I all of a sudden went from completely on an island to being connected to my, my people um, and being connected to my wife. It took a little while for me to feel connected to my daughter, but it was, uh, it just, it, it transformed the feeling immediately. It's so important. You know, it's like uh, during that same conversation I had with uh, Liza last night, my wife, you know, I said, I just need to share with you how I've been feeling today. And she's like, go for it. And I'm like, I'm finding it really difficult to work from home. Normally, I just go to Starbucks and work in Starbucks today. So I really find it difficult to work from home. She said, why? I said, every time I look at you and I see that you're stressed and you're running around after Zia and uh, you're doing, you're helping your mom and dad out with stuff and and every time you look over at me, I'm creating a story in my head that you're thinking, look at this bastard. He didn't give a fuck. He's just sat there working, right? Like, what a life I'd love to have his life. And I said, I'll be honest with you, like, I, I feel so, I've been feeling so much shame, so much guilt, and it manifests itself in fakeness, in authenticity. So then I'll be like, come and give me a kiss or give me a cuddle. Or are you all right? So I'm behaving like a slimy little kid, right? Trying to get that kind of like, that hit of, no, you're okay, I love you, et cetera, et cetera. And she said to me, 
uh, and you just want to run away to Starbucks, right? And I got defensive. I'm like, no, it's not just that. She goes, no, 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 you want to run away to Starbucks. I'm like, yeah. And she said, well, you're experiencing what you talk to everybody about every day, and that is sitting and feeling your emotions. She said, you talk to people, you teach people, you tell them that they have to sit with their emotions because if they don't, they'll use something to numb them. You're, you're using work. You're using Starbucks to numb these feelings, sit with them, feel them. They're okay. You're just human. Right. And, and, and I was like, Oh, fucking hell, light bulb. Like I never realized I was avoiding these feelings. I, I, I would have told you, Mike, I'm the guy who feels my feelings and talks about my feelings. Right. And here I am bullshitting myself. The reason I think this conversation is important is if we don't have these, um, going back to this authenticity, you know, your three principles, basically, if we don't yep. apply these three principles in our relationship, and you can explain what they are in a minute, then we will bottle it up. We're more likely to have conflict. And if we are someone who uses or is uh, in recovery, we are more likely to be triggered and to want to go to those areas. So you can comment on that and then lead into your three principles if you, if you want, Mike. Yeah, dude. Um, I'm feeling a little creeped out because I feel like you've been living in my head because I related everything. And I've been married twice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're my brother from another mother. Yeah. So, yeah. and I also used to live in LA. Um, <laughs> so, but, but I, I had the exact same thing um, where I was working and, and I wanted to work uh, remotely because I created that story in my head that my wife was pissed off that I was working. And the truth was I would rather be working than doing what she was doing. And I felt guilty for that. And so I just, I, I love what you just shared. And I think, you know, so as addicts, I think we have a, a curse and a blessing. When I think about the things that I'm grateful for, I'm actually grateful for my addiction before I ever tar- start thinking about my recovery. Um, because my addiction gives me the excuse to prioritize a process that makes me feel my feelings, that makes me reconcile reality. And, and what that does is that gives me the ability to reclaim a tremendous amount of energy and really like chart my own path. Whereas I think most quote unquote normies out there, they don't have the same pain. They're not, they don't have a loaded gun pointing at their head that says, if you don't do practice these principles, you will die. Um, and as a result, they don't get the freedom that I get by making that a priority. And so mm-hmm. the principles what I did was I took my experience in 12 step and my experience, you know, going from a kiosk rep in a mall to uh, a corporate leader with a $250 million budget and 19 director ports in my twenties as a homeless drug addict with no college degree. Um, and then I left that and I founded an Inc 500 company and built that, sold it to a public company, all, all that kind of stuff. What I learned was applying the principles of recovery to my professional life actually gave me an advantage over everybody that I competed with. And that's why I do think that great leaders live like drug addicts. And so um, what I did was I started saying, okay, I need to codify what it means to practice these principles in my professional life. Because when I started my own company, I needed to start thinking about how do I teach other people that aren't addicts this process that I've learned? And so um, over the years, I, I was able to distill it down. I didn't really nail it until before my TED Talk. Um, but the three principles are practice rigorous authenticity surrender the outcome, and do uncomfortable work. And these three principles are what anybody in recovery needs to be effective at, but they are also the opposite of what leaders are taught will make them great. They're taught that they have to hide their true selves in order to be successful. So they hide behind that mask, a general, a corporate executive. They are taught that they have to obsess over outcomes. So they waste a tremendous amount of energy 
focusing on things they can't control at the expense of the things that they can and hurting themselves internally. And then doing uncomfortable work. We don't do uncomfortable work when we, when we don't have clarity on who we are and what we need to do and when we lack energy. And so when you practice rigorous authenticity and you surrender the outcome and you get clear on who you are and who you aren't, and you actually reclaim a tremendous amount of energy by letting go of things you can't control, then we can do uncomfortable work. And, and people like when I go do coaching or speaking for corporations, um, they'll be like, we know how to do uncomfortable work. I'm like, you know how to do smart work and hard work. Those are physical and intellectual. Uncomfortable work is emotional. It's a physical sensation in your body that deters you from taking the action that you know you need to take. So for example, not asking your boss for what you need, not asking for that raise, not telling your coworker that you don't agree with how they're doing something, not performance managing your employee, not negotiating with a customer, not talking to a partner, not telling your significant other in a pandemic that you need some quiet time in a room all to yourself. Like we avoid all those difficult conversations all the time. That's the uncomfortable work. And we as recovering people, we have to master that process and it gives us a level of agency and efficiency in our professional lives, in all of our lives. But I'm just very interested in how it actually drives concrete business outcomes because I want to give the leaders of this world a reason to adopt the same process that addicts have been using to recover because I think that it will make them better leaders. Yeah, when I was uh, watching your TED Talk and listening to you explaining those principles, the first thing that that struck my mind and, and, and linked into the philosophy that I follow was it's, first of all, I said to myself, oh, it's not just the leaders. Actually, this is the way that the world is set up. So, yes. so like we, when you think about it, it is the leaders that are actually holding all the cards in, in how the world operates. But so I, I, I think that rather than addiction, be a, an individual problem. So Mike's, a, Mike's an addict. He has a problem. Lee is an addict. He has a problem. We need to fix Mike. We need to fix Lee. Uh, the work that I've kind of, you know, it's like you, you quit drinking and then over time you, you, your idea around how you did it more and changes. Yeah, oh, totally. Mine is, current, mine is currently at, um, well, I, I had no choice. Like the, the, the world is an addictive system. It's the macro version of me as a micro. They, they want me to be inauthentic. They want me to lie. They want me to pretend everything's all right when it isn't. Uh, they don't want me to, uh, they want me to focus on results. They don't want me to enjoy the process and they don't want me to be uncomfortable. They want me to be comfortable, which is why I have to lie. So that is, that is the way the world is set up and it's, it's, it's all bullshit. You know, it's like, and, and it is a real, it is a real dilemma. You know, it's like um, when we, you know, go back to our kids, isn't it? When we talk to our kids, and you know, we want to teach them not to lie, but at the same time, we kind of know that at some point, for them to kind of just fit into this fucking world, they're gonna have to bend a little bit, and that feels really super uncomfortable for me. So I'm always kind of espousing your three principles in different ways, in different, yeah. ways, different terminology. But I think you, you nail it. You know. Well, I, I agree with everything you said. In, uh, in my book, the first chapter is, hi, I'm Mike and I'm a drug addict. And the second chapter is, hi, you're blank and you're a mask addict. Hmm. And then my third chapter is the, the addict's advantage. And what I essentially argue is that the reason that we don't, because you're right, the leaders of this world wear masks, they hide their true selves in order to be successful and, they're, and they have addictive tendencies. And then what we do is we go into the workplace which is where we actually spend the most of our time and we learn skills. 
and we see how they got success and we conform. Yeah. And the thing is, is that I think that we see that people are hungry for authentic leaders, authentic companies, authentic product products, authentic brands, but they're not getting it because it, for the same reason that an addict doesn't stop, you have to acknowledge that you have an addiction in order to do something about it. And you can tell an addict, stop all you want. But it's not until you tell them what to start instead. And the leaders of this world don't have a system for authentic leadership. They've got thought leaders, like I love Brene Brown and, and other people out there that will inspire you with the what and the why, but they don't have like a step-by-step how, like something that is that will actually work, like your system, the 12 steps, like whatever. If we can help a heroin addict stop slamming dope every single day, regardless of their education level, we should be able to show a leader how to systematically take off their mask and show their true selves. And so what I outline is essentially adapting these principles for professionals so that they can stop their addiction to the mask mm. and, and, and they can apply it in any way that they want in other areas. But I think that we are, we just haven't acknowledged that the problem is it's not that the people in this world need to act differently. It's that they can't. The reason that is so important, what you said, and that why I always tell people at 1000 Days Sober, come to 1000 Days Sober, but I'm not here to help you quit alcohol. Like I'm here to help you quit alcohol and live a fulfilled life. Because if I help you quit alcohol and you turn into an even more miserable bastard than the person you are today, then I've failed. And that's not what I want. Yep. Go back and fucking drink. You know, like this is about being happy. Right. And I remember I worked in the railway for 19 years when I left school, Mike, and I left when I stopped drinking alcohol because I felt I had the power to kind of finally challenge what I was, what I was doing there. And I was a member, I would go to Doncaster, which is our headquarters in the North of England. And our CEO at the time is a guy called Keith Heller, very effervescent, uh, inspiring, inspirational Canadian figure. And I'd be there and I'd be listening to him and he'd be saying, yeah, this is all about our people. Our people are most important. Then come our customers, et cetera, et cetera. And then we'd get in a car on the way back to Wales and my managing director would be like, okay, right, forget all of that. We're not doing any of that, okay? Because if we do any of that, I ain't going to get my bonus. Yep. So so then, then you find yourselves at odds with your own personal values, you have to wear a mask when you don't want to because yep. you're, a, you're a middle manager. You have to go into your employees and you can't really be, you, you are be, I mean, the way the line I took is I ended up being honest with them, but then I would be an odd to my MD. So when I eventually left, you know, he just, he let, he couldn't wait. To, he couldn't wait for me to go. Like, you know, um, so why is that important? Ah, oh, man, I was just, I cannot describe in words how miserable and off point I was when it comes to my meaning and purpose. I was so far off point, but the problem is back then when you're an addict, you don't even know that you're so far off point because you don't know what your meaning and purpose is. And, and it wasn't until the day after I left that I woke up with no alarm clock, with, with knowing that nobody was going to trap their finger in a fucking wagon door and I would get blamed for it, that my trains wouldn't run on time, that a customer wouldn't fucking complain to me, that one of my staff members uh, wouldn't go sick this weekend and I wouldn't be able to fill a position. I had nothing to worry about all of a sudden. And then I was like, oh, wow, okay, what do I really want to do in life, right? Um, yeah. So fucking powerful. Like, And if you just if you follow the herd and break every single one of these uh, principles that Mike is talking about, you're heading for a world of hurt and you don't even know you're heading there. That's the fucking saddest part about it. Well, the so the one of the challenges that I have is like, I'm so obsessed with applying these principles to the professional world. And the reason is not because I'm solely obsessed with the professional world, but when people look at recovery, when they look at 
um, authenticity. They see that as personal self-help stuff. And, and it's my personal experience that the greatest competitive advantage any individual team and organization in this world can achieve for the lowest cost is to teach their people how to live and lead mask-free. Mm-hmm. Um, I've assessed over a thousand leaders from the, the boardroom to the mailroom to the classroom to the living room. And 90% report that they wear masks at work. And what I found is everybody hides themselves at work in one of four ways. There's four masks. And these four masks in aggregate cost people on average 500 hours a year. That is enough time. Imagine having a calendar that had three months with nothing on it. Or if you're like into TV, that's enough time to watch every episode of Friends, every episode of The Wire, watch every single Marvel movie, become a certified yoga instructor and still be able to catch the Tiger King. Yeah. Like it's it's a tremendous amount of time. And, and these four masks are what everybody is doing in the professional world right now. And the only people that have been taught the skills on how to not use these masks at work and claim that advantage are recovering addicts. And you, as a recovering addict, feel absolutely terrified to explain to a potential employer that you're an addict. It, and, it, and it's such a shame. Like Renat Strahlhofer, who was a previous guest here, she said, if only people could wake the fuck up and they could look at your CV and go, holy shit, you went through a divorce? You're a recovering drug addict? Oh, you must have so much potential. You've suffered so much. You, you've faced adversity. You've overcome it. You know how to get over obstacles, nothing, step, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's not there, is it? It's a lot of the times, like, because the, the people who are appointing, they are not as willing to take that risk. Right. And this is why the work that you do is really important. This is the work that Rinat does is really important. It's because it is allowing us to reach more people with a different point of view. And maybe every now and then one of them will go, okay, I'm going to give that a shot. And it could be something as simple as going into the mess room with your employees just on one day, just being a little bit more honest than you was the day before. Yeah. Oh, uh, so I tell people, I'm like, if you want to start, changing, you know, your, how you lead yourself, how you lead others and how leadership exists in this world, share with one person at work, a weakness that you're scared to tell them. Like that's how you start. And, and what you'll find, uh, we found this stat that, um, 85% of the things that we fear never happen. And so we waste a tremendous amount of time out of fear. And, and so, you, so when we think about one of the four masses hiding a weakness, when we think about that one, when you hide a weakness, you waste a tremendous amount of time. So I remember spending 22 hours trying to figure out Microsoft Excel when I could have spent 15 minutes asking someone for help. Mm. Um, but we we stifle our own growth, but we also rob ourselves of the ability to connect with others. Uh, Google did this. Um, I've done a lot of work with Google and they're really thoughtful about this kind of work. And they did this um, assessment of their teams. They assessed over 200 teams across 180 characteristics and it's their rework project. And they were looking for what are the characteristics of highest performing teams. They identified the top 15 characteristics and the number one characteristic was psychological safety. And the thing about psychological safety is our greatest levels of safety and connection are not created in our strength. They're created in our weakness. Because if we don't see you at your worst, how do we know if we're safe? 
right? And so one of the things I, I, I was working with this great executive who ended up endorsing my book and bringing me in to work with her team and, and doing all this great stuff. And, and one of the things she said was she was obsessed with the concept of psychological safety. But when I looked through their report, they had all these tips like acknowledge people's differences. Like, and I'm not saying don't do that stuff. That's great. But here, how about this? How about you go to your team and you say, you know what? I suck at X. And if I don't get better, I'm going to get fired. I am in the middle of the shit right now. I have no idea how the story ends, but walk with me and watch what I do. And as I lead myself, you can think about the things that you're scared to talk about that are holding back your potential. And we can all talk about them together and we can grow together instead of everybody trying to say, I, you know, being scared of saying, I don't know, or massaging their metrics or, you know, hiding their weaknesses or whatever. And, and so when I went and worked with her team, she went deeper than everybody else. And she made a safe environment for everybody to talk about their challenges. And what that gave everybody was agency to co-create a different reality that is more efficient and more effective. And it actually leads to better freaking business outcomes. But people get so freaking uncomfortable when you talk about authenticity, when you talk about people should do what drug addicts do, that they go, no, 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 we're not going to do any of that. But like, dude, there are so many people that are not reaching their potential because they say yes to things they could say no to. They hide their weaknesses. They avoid difficult conversations and they hold back their unique perspective. And any CEO right now, any leader right now that says, I'm going to make it my mission to empower my team to do those four things will absolutely obliterate everybody that they're competing against, but they're going to have to get effing uncomfortable because people will make fun of them. People will say, that's not how you lead. And you know what? That's what happened to me. And that's how I ended up becoming the manager of my mentors. And that's Sorry, why, a little bit of a rant, but I like I like rants, and that's why sometimes you have to you have to um, plow your own furrow type of thing. Is that the right phrase? So when I was on the railway, I would continually be accosted by my managing director about being too open, about talking too much, about being too freely around the edges, and in the end. And when I left, I was like, ah, oh, fuck this. I'm just going to create my own company and do the fuck I like. You know, I, I don't want to be fighting this fight all the time. And here's the thing. Let's say you, let's say, and I'll do a direct uh, parallel with, with addiction. Let's say you work in a company. It doesn't matter what it is. You're the CEO of that company. Maybe it's a small company, right? You've got like 30 people working for you, right? So you think you've got a 30 strong team, Right. Now, let's say you're in Strive, which is our community forum, and there are, let's say there's 30 people on there. So you think you're in a 30-strong team, right? But if the CEO of that 30-strong team is being disingenuous, is being inauthentic, is, is coming from a place of fear and scarcity and lack, okay, and he breeds that through his organization, he ain't got a fucking team. And if you're in uh, Strive and you're somebody there who is suffering from fear, is suffering from lack, you, you can't get authentic. You can't be vulnerable, but you've got all these people. You ain't in a team. You're just, you, you, that ain't a team, right? But if you right. can somehow do what Michael's saying and you can do these three principles and you can drop those four masks, whether you're in a, a professional outfit or whether you're a part of something that's helping you to recover from your addiction, now you're talking an ability to generate such greater volume and traction and power and togetherness that can fucking catapult you, not like caterpillar you, you know, like I think what you're talking about is really important. And I can see quite clearly how the two, your book and your ideas really uh, correlate really well between business and uh, addiction, Mike. Thanks. You know, we've got, it, I still get marvel. I still marvel at the fact that um, 
I learned how to not use drugs and alcohol by hanging out with other addicts and drinking really shitty coffee. And then I get paid and my team gets paid to go teach corporate executives with MBAs how to really lead. Mm. And um, I think that's an incredible place to be. And so like, if you're out there right now and you're listening and you're an addict of any kind, you know, whether you're active or in some form of recovery or abstinence, I would just say that the world has seen nothing yet. We got a saying that in, in, in my 12-step fellowship that says, a head full of recovery will fuck up your using. Well, a head full of these three principles will fuck up your leadership. Hmm. And, and I think that it starts with how you lead yourself. And, and we always think about, and I really love the work that you do because we talk about, um, I think we talk about recovery from addiction as something that neutralizes uh, a negative or a stigma. We don't talk about it like it, it necessitates a superpower. We don't talk about it that way. But to me, that's what it is. It's a superpower. If I could take a pill tomorrow and I wouldn't have to participate in being this vigilant about how I feel and how I think and being authentic, and I didn't have to do any of that anymore, I wouldn't take it. Because I like that pressure. That pressure makes me better than the person next to me. It makes me not, not like as a human, right? But like when I'm getting shit done, I, I don't waste 500 hours a year pretending to be someone else. I don't, I don't do that. I, I, I probably wasted it on like social media or something or something else or like friends and, and The Wire and, and, and Marvel or, movies. Or, or reading all those books behind you. Oh, yeah. But that's not that's waste. True. That's all knowledge, brother. They're not fiction books, are they? Well, there's there's a good mix here. You've got you got nonfiction, you got fiction, and someone once said like, "Hey, have you read all those books?" And I was like, "Most of them." Mm. They're like, "Oh, really?" I was like, "Yeah." Like, do you think people put up books that they didn't read? And and, <laughs> and they're like, "Yes, I do." And I'm like, "Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I have some gifts up there that I haven't gotten to, but overall, it's a uh, it's anywhere from Stephen King to uh, you know." Uh, Brene Brown to the big book of AA to my 12 step fellowship. I'm not an AA, but like, you know, there's all kinds of good stuff up yeah, there. Yeah. It's good stuff. I even have my book up there, which feels really, really self-centered. Ah, it's not. I'm, I'm, I'm in the talks with somebody to write a book right now and I can't wait till I get my physical cop in my hand. It's been fucking long enough. I'm going to blast it out of everybody who gives a shit. Um, let's end on a, on a conversation that I'm really interested in your thoughts on. Cause um, I'm not sure. If we will agree on this one, we might have divergent opinions, but I think it'd be really interesting for people. Let's see where we get off with it. So when it comes to striving 1,000 days sober, you know, a lot, we have more than three principles. I think we have like fucking 100, but, <laughs> but some of the core ones are we want to be radically honest. We want to be radically transparent. We want to be authentic. Uh, we want to teach people to be um, comfortable with being uncomfortable. We want people to not only focus on the process instead of focusing on, focusing on results, but to really try to find a way of enjoying the process. It doesn't have to be fun, but, you know, enjoying. But when it comes down to authenticity, I'll be honest, like I have people on Strive right now. Yes, you who are listening to this. Yes, you I'm talking about who... Do not want anybody at work knowing that they're a member of Strive. Don't want any of their family knowing. Mm -hmm. Don't want any of their friends knowing. There's such a stigma still attached to it. They're not ready to tell their friends that they don't want to stop drinking forever. And I hear all the justifications like, well, it's too long away. But all it always comes down to um, a fear of being vulnerable and being an outsider, right? So I'm always pushing, no, no, no. At some point when you're ready, we need to deal with this issue of anonymity um, for two reasons. One, 
I really think that it's going to slow your process down unless you can show me otherwise. Um, two, for the greater good of the world and our worldwide battle against these issues, because let's not forget, I think that addiction is a systemic issue yeah. from life. So every time I have someone in Strive who keeps their mouth shut and doesn't tell people they've got a problem and become vulnerable about that, it's kind of feeding the system. It's feeding this addictive system because we're being quiet about it. A good example is I just said to Mike, I'm really struggling sitting down and giving presents to my daughter. And I can't wait to put her to bed. Um, and Mike goes, fucking wow. Like, I feel the same way. That's the power, right? But there's also the other side of it, which is, no, people retain a right to be anonymous. Uh, and and not anonymity doesn't necessarily equate to authenticity. There are really good reasons why people should remain anonymous. And if you push them, you could actually do more harm than good. So I'm interested as a, as a you know, going through a 12-step uh, process. You're clearly not anonymous yourself, but what is your view around anonymity as it relates to authenticity? I think it's an important question. And I think that, I don't think you'll disagree with my answer, but it may be like not as satisfying because so to me, so in 12 step, we actually use there. Everybody understands one way we use the term anonymity, but we use it for another reason. Um, another reason that we use it is to remind ourselves that anonymity is a state of bearing no name. And the reason that's so important for us is it, it helps us focus on principles instead of personalities. And so and one of the famous ways that we apply that is, um, you know, if somebody's sharing a message, don't get wrapped up in whether you like that person or not. Listen to what they're saying and that can help you. Um, but it's also what you do when nobody else is looking, right? So it's, it's integrity, it's character. So for me, um, I personally am a huge fan of sharing openly um, for all the reasons that you stated. I think that it is simpler. I think it's more authentic for me. It's I, I'm not managing two different you know personas. I I think that it 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 ha I know that for a fact now that it has helped a lot of people. Me willing to step into that. Um, at the same time, uh, I think that, and this is just for me, I had to learn that that it was a form of arrogance for me to say that other people should do what I'm doing for the good of other people. Because they have to find what's comfortable for them. And so the example I use is even though my wife is not an addict, she's a normie and she loves it when I call her a normie. She's an intensely private person. Like she doesn't like most people in this world. Like she doesn't have a lot of friends because she, the few friends that she has, she loves fiercely because she's, a, she's an introvert and she does, she's just not a huge people person. So while she has no problem being authentic and it can be really uncomfortable when she is sometimes when it's like, uh, when I said, Hey, are you looking forward to come and meeting all my friends at the meeting? I'm like, it was like our, I don't know, sixth or seventh date. And she was the first girl ever day that just looked at me and said, no, I'm not looking forward to that's gonna be fucking uncomfortable. <laughs> and I was like, what? I was like, well, I, well, you're right. It is, but you're the first person that ever said this. So she's really authentic, but she doesn't prioritize the way that she lives her life around volunteering information publicly. I'm more of a, like, I want to serve the world and she serves our world at home. So basically I agree with everything that you said about the value. Although I would, I would caution someone that they need to reach a certain level of stability in their recovery before they start just yeah. taking that on. But I also have had to learn for myself that just because I believe in that and I see the good in it doesn't mean that 
Um, I've got some friends. I had to learn this the hard way. I have a friend who she's like my sister in recovery and she and I just see anonymity differently and I respect her so much. And at, at one point she just said, Hey, your view of the world is not the only view. And I was like, Kate, why are you so smart? I hate that. <laughs> but um, so I've, I've just had to learn that um, I, I philosophically agree with you. I, I try to push people to share their identity. Um, because in my experience, if you're hiding a part of yourself, that's not typically faith. That's not typically trust. That's not the spiritual process. Um, at the same time, I don't want to get to the place where I actually think that I know what's good for everybody. Mm. I like that, Michael. You give me a lot to think about. I was actually, um, I'm a writer as well, and uh, I write poker articles. And I, um, I had some feedback from some people who just hated what I did. And they said that they hated it because I made every story about myself. Like, um, and I was like, well, yeah, that's, that's how I like writing. It's my style. I like it. And other people like it. And they're like, yeah, well, we don't like it because we're not interested in you. We're interested in reading about so-and-so. And I get the same feedback on interviews as well. Uh, I wanted to hear more about Mike. I didn't want to hear what you were saying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it wasn't until I was doing a masterclass with Neil Gaiman the other day and I was listening to him and he was saying, be very, very cautious when you're talking about yourself um, because it wasn't, no, it wasn't Neil Gaiman, it was Malcolm Gladwell, because how much interest is there in you? And, and anyway, the reason I'm saying that is I was like, oh, okay, Lee, sometimes you've got to be a little careful of your own ego. You've got to be a little bit careful of your own agenda and like you say, not pushing my own ego, my own thoughts, my own principles, my own values too heavily on people because you're right. You know, we are nothing but a little bit of speck of dust in this universe of ours. And so thanks for that. But I like you being that, like, I got sad when, when you said someone said you shouldn't be using your stories. And I think that their judgment of what you should be doing is like the whole point of like what I was saying, Right. There's a lot of respect for other people's stories when you use your own to make your point. And, and I think that people love to like do this false like humility thing where, oh, I don't make it about me, arrogant humility. And they're just trying to manipulate everybody's perception because they want to be seen as humble and, and, and all that kind of stuff. At the same time, your story specifically has the power to change people's lives. And so you not stepping into that story is a crime. Um, and that's what you and I both agree on generally, right? Mm, I'm not going to yeah. tell other people to do it, but you're clearly okay with it. And so, because they don't agree with that, like for them to think that you should or shouldn't is to disrespect whatever your unique perspective in this world is. And I think that it's beautiful that that you 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 continue to share your story. And I think that people thinking that they know what's best for you, because like the thing I learned in recovery is it's a really tough balance between. I know what an addict needs to do to not use. At the same time, I need to have a level of detachment when I share that experience because I have to leave enough room for all the shit I don't know and for all the ways this can go that I don't understand and for a higher power at work and for their experience and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And so what I try to do is I try to say, I'm going to give you an enthusiastic way to look at this and I'm going to make my point. Like I'm telling you that if you don't follow what I'm saying, you're going to die. Mm hmm. But at the, end of the, at the end of the day, it's a choose your own adventure situation. And I think that when you are sharing your story in service to others, and that's one of the most powerful things that you can do because it both owns the, the agency that you're able to provide for others while giving them the freedom to actually step up and own theirs. 
Yeah, I think it goes back. A lot of it may, and I'm I'm assuming here, but a lot of it may come back to this binary way of thinking that you talked about earlier on. So people will look at an interview or a piece of work or a piece of art and they'll either say, wow, that's incredibly valuable to people, or they'll say, wow, that's very self-centered and arrogant. And and, and probably the truth is somewhere on yeah. that spectrum. Look at politics. Like you yeah. can't you can't have a view that's not in alignment with your political party and still be a member of your political party. What kind of horseshit is that? Yeah. Are there really only two types of humans in the world? <laughs> like, <laughs> is, that the, like, is that the reason I've never voted? Uh, <laughs> dude, it's yeah, that's we, we let's let's end with the anonymity part. Let's not start <laughs> politics. No, we, we won't. Hey, mate, we won't. We won't go into politics. I know nothing about it. And uh, although, like somebody, I was, I was helping uh, on Strive. He said to me, "Everything's politics." And I was like, "Oh, like just fucking my mind up even more now." Uh, yeah, yeah. Michael, it's been really pleasure having you on. I will make sure everyone knows where to find you in the show notes and everything. Anything you want to say to the the crowd before you leave? Uh, one thing. Um, so if you want to learn to identify which of the four masks is holding you back, um, I've created a mask assessment that we usually charge for, but for your audience, it'll be free. If they, t- if, if you text the words mask free together to three, three. Uh, so I, I find when I say two, it gets confusing t- uh, text mask free. And the number that you text it to the number is 33777. And we will send you the mask assessment, which then will give you a report and tell you what, what mask is holding you back. What about people like me who can't, I don't have an American phone? Uh, that's actually a great question. Um, uh, this will air uh, probably after May 25th. Uh, what day is it? Yeah, yeah, it will. Yeah, it's about it's so be they like can three go to weeks mask. Out. They can go to maskfreeprogram.com. Okay. And just those words together, massfreeprogram.com. And that's where I actually have a portal full of resources on the three principles. You can build your own mask-free action card and you can take the assessment. Okay, Mike, it's been a wonderful uh, pleasure having you on. I'm just going to press the stop button to get rid of everybody, but don't you go anywhere, okay? (laughs) Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to the Alcohol Addiction Podcast. Now, before you run away, just a few things, okay? So... The next time we run the 1000 Day Sober Experience, our program that guides you and helps you to become 1000 Day Sober, so that's 2.7 years, folks, right? It's the only long-term program in the world where we're with you constantly to help and guide you through the six stages of the Strive Model for Change. We get you through being stuck, we get you through thinking and the ambivalence around drinking alcohol we get you through the research phase of making some change we get you through the change we manage you through that change and then after that with alcohol in the rearview mirror we help you to evolve to live a fulfilled life to do that incredibly important post recovery work which so many people so many organizations out there dismiss or just don't even cover at all right so we got you back for 1000 days The next time we run an experience will be in July. But do not wait until then. The best thing that you can do right now is to get over to www.1000daysober.com and sign up to be a member of Strive today. Okay? It is £40 a month subscription that includes uh, the 1000 Days Sober experience. It includes uh, online workshop. 
It includes online meetings. It includes guidance from our ambassadors. It includes one-on-one -on -one meetings with our incredible Strive coaches who are uh, skilled at a vast array of important elements of your life that are gonna drive up and increase your physical and mental health. And by joining now, you get used to the environment, you get used to the community, you get used to the people, and when, by the time July comes along, you'll be firing on all cylinders, kind of roaring to get into the 1000 Days Sober Experience. So do that today, really, really important. If you want to get the show notes for today, the show notes are exceptional, folks. You get the show notes from today's episode. You want to get a full transcription of today's episode. And you want to get a special workbook um, that will give you some, some fun and interesting questions based on today's episode that you can help that will um, one-up your life, right? Then get over to www.1000daysober.com. You will find the link there and sign up, give us your email address, and we will give you uh, we will give you these things free of charge, okay? And on that 40 pounds a month, if you do not have the money, if you are struggling financially, then email me at thetruthaboutalcohol at gmail.com and we'll figure something out. Do not let money get in your way of becoming 1,000 days sober. And just because we go 1,000 days sober, right? Don't be worried about that if you're not quite ready to quit yet. The first stage of the Strive Model for Change is called Stuck. The second stage is called Thought. And we do not expect you to stop drinking whilst you're doing that work. And that will take you a good four to five months. So you get a lot of grace. We will meet you where you're at in your addiction to alcohol. Don't worry about that, okay? We take on everybody. People who are desperately trying to stop drinking and people who stop drinking and they just want help putting their life back together, okay? Um, lastly, if you enjoyed listening to Alcohol Addiction Podcast, then please rate and review it on your local provider whether that would be apple or soundcloud or whatever uh, just give us a nice review and some nice stars you can find us on instagram at 1000daysober.com or 1000daysober and you can find us on youtube 1000daysober as well all right take care yourselves folks ciao ciao